0: You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Hello everyone. Uh, In case you don't know me, my name is Sam. A really warm welcome to Redeemer this morning, um, particularly if you've kind of arrived late and so haven't received any of the multiple welcomes that you've received so far. Um, This morning is a great privilege for me to be preaching the final sermon in our series through the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Uh, we entitled this book, uh, A Tale of Two Cities, this book, the sermon series, A Tale of Two Cities, because although the story itself, Nehemiah, talks about Nehemiah leading uh, the project to rebuild the wall around the city of Jerusalem, it can speak to us in terms of our role in building the eternal city of God um, and the role that Redeemer plays as, expressing, as an expression of the global church in God's kingdom. Nehemiah, we have learned over the past uh, nine weeks, is a man to be greatly admired. He was was responsible for bringing the cup to the king, King Artaxerxes, who was based over in Susa, which is a four-month journey from Jerusalem. But because of the walls having collapsed, he was moved with compassion. He prayed, and he went across, traveled for four months to Jerusalem, and led an incredible building project which rebuilt the wall in record time. Sanballat and Tobiah were two people who fought against the rebuilding of the wall, didn't want it to be built, but Nehemiah persevered through, overcame that opposition, and saw the wall being rebuilt. He established means by which the people could become self-sufficient, and the poor were fed and clothed and sheltered. But then more than that, he developed means by which they could be supported spiritually as well, inspired them to uh, read the Bible and reestablish the ancient traditions. And then probably the climax was Nehemiah chapter 10, where the people of God themselves committed publicly, we are going to live the way that God wants us to live. And they promised three things. I don't know if you remember a couple of weeks ago, Pete led us through spouse, Sabbath, sanctuary. We're going to commit to marrying within the people of God. Uh, We're going to keep Sabbath, a day of rest once a week, and we're not going to trade, and we're going to keep the temple as a holy place which is set apart for the presence of God. And so now we come to the final chapter, the glorious finish to this story. In the Hollywood movie, it would be Nehemiah cheered on by the people for having led them to this place, riding off into the sunset with his beautiful bride and everyone cheering, and the orchestra reaches its final crescendo Final credits roll. Unfortunately, the Bible actually tells real life, not fiction, and the final chapter is nothing at all like that. So um, let's read it together. So in Nehemiah chapter 13, if you've brought Bible or you've got your phone, um, I'm just going to read it. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. That's relating to a story that is in the Old Testament earlier on. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now, before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions to the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padeah of the Levites. And as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zachar, son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers." Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, and I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates, that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of white wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. I don't think that that was to pray. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. And they all lived happily ever after. (laughs) This is not how I would have ended this story if I were writing a biography of Nehemiah's life. After all of this great work that he's done, all of this effort that he's put in, all that he's achieved, everything just falls away to the point that actually the people are doing exactly what they were doing before we arrived in the first place. In this chapter, I think that we can see... Uh, let me take a step back before I get into that. If I could have the next slide, please. Sorry. I'm a business advisor, and occasionally my clients will ask me, well, we've got a problem, and so can you come and help us fix the problem? And so we're going to follow my professional process this morning. Start by identifying what issues they had that they had faced in it. We will then look at those and assess them and do some good old-fashioned root cause analysis to work out what is the root cause behind it all. And then that will inform us what the solution is and therefore what we can learn from it. Does that all make sense? Yes. So I, I've identified four issues which are in this chapter which will show us what it was that undid all of Nehemiah's good work. I'll try and sign posters through it so it should make sense. The first is this. Nehemiah went away. I don't know if you noticed that the start, it said that the king called him and so he went all the way back to Susa, months' journey, stayed there, and then after some time then traveled all the way back. And all of this stuff that happened, happened while he was away. So Nehemiah left and because he wasn't there, then the people fell back into what they were doing before. Now, it wasn't necessarily the wrong thing for him to do to go over there. He was still responsible to the king. The king had given him leave to go there and so it was Fair enough that the king should ask him to come back at some point. But this is just the nature of life, isn't it? That we have competing distractions, multiple complex priorities that we've got to weigh up against each other. And it's not as simple as just saying, oh, well, this is, this is God's way, and so I'm going to do it that way. When I first became a Christian, then I was taught that you ought to have a priority list that looks like this. God, family, church, work. And that was when I first became a Christian. That's what I was told, and that's what I believed. And so any decision that came along, I would say, oh, okay, you know, match it up like this. Let's look back over my calendar over the year and see what it lines up being. But actually, everything in that list is just a distraction from something else on that list. So I am not as successful in my job because I'm distracted by those pesky kids and my wife who want me home in the evenings. And I am not as successful a husband in terms of spending enough quality time with my wife because my work takes me away from them during the day. And church takes me away from them. And then I can't serve as hard because I need to go to the office during the week and then I need to stay out. So, and I'm sure that you could come up with multiple things. We're just about to hit Christmas. I don't know if you've noticed that. And I'm sure that there are many conversations going on about where are we going to spend Christmas this year? Is it my family or is it at the in-laws? Or should we just eliminate that conversation and just spend it just us because that would be nice. Well, anyone's going to be upset no matter what you do. We all have these competing priorities, and uh, Nehemiah had the challenge that he actually, there were two options. There was one which was stay and one which was go, and he was responsible for both. His decision led to the people of God completely falling off a cliff. Probably fair to say he made the wrong decision. But how difficult must it be when you are responsible for something, and it's a good thing, but it's not the best thing? And we're all caught in that battle, aren't we? How often when you look back, we're at the end of 2014 now, if you look back over your calendar, over your bank statements, over your internet history for the past year, if I were to look at that, what would I conclude in terms of what are your priorities? What's the most distracting thing for you? We all have them. Is it time with family, work, time on your own? Because that's important. But is it the most important thing? It's difficult, isn't it? Redeemer, as a local church, can learn this as well. We have got many different things that we're running. I just had the opportunity to see what we've got planned for 2015 now. And in fact, we've got the church app. If you go on that, you can see the calendar for 2015 and see what we've got planned. We're keeping going with Sunday mornings. That's good news, isn't it? We've got community groups happening every week. We're running three Alpha courses and a Freedom in Christ course. And a whole whole manner of other things, not to mention things like food bank and just one-off bits and bobs which people are... Um, are going through on their own. Redeemer is only a certain size and only has a limited amount of resources and everything is going to detract from something else. Sometimes there are going to be good things that Redeemer wants to do, but we have to say no to doing it because we want to do the right things to the best of our ability. And so that means that there are going to be problems in Ealing that we are aware of and know that we could solve, but we say we are not going to solve that problem because there is a bigger problem which we are specifically called to do. And that might be a difficult pill to swallow sometimes if it's of personal interest to you. It's better for us to all be united behind God's vision for Redeemer and not get distracted by kind of every little thing that's going on there. So That's the first problem, distractions. The second problem was this. Nehemiah was a spoth. Does anyone know what spoth means what it stands for? No. It's just my business language. So SPOF stands for single point of failure. If you look through that chapter, I don't know if you spotted it, but at the end of each problem, then he, he said something like, I established my servants to guard the gates, or to he reestablished the Levites to go back into the temple and to do what they should have been doing. Nehemiah had established himself as such an important part of this system that when he went, nobody else was there to step into his shoes. And that was part of the reason why the whole thing fell apart. Now, for each of us, we are a single point of failure, most of us, for our own lives. Now, as 21st century Westerners, this seems like a weird thing to say because, of course, I'm a single point of failure for my own life because I am me, and therefore, who else would it be? But actually, the 21st century Westerner individualistic view is very different from many other cultures' views. If you heard that phrase, it takes a village to raise a child, There are natural communities and groups of people that happen. Villages, families, local churches. If we try to live our lives and manage every little thing on our own, then the moment that something comes along which takes our attention away, then other things are going to suffer as a result. And we see this happening with individuals all the time. It's far better for us to look at what it is that we've got and just ask other people for help. We're better together. It's not a strength to say, I don't need help from other people. Think about it like this. I work for a firm uh, which, we just had our financial statements last week, so I know I can say this. We have a firm who has got $7 billion revenue this last year, and we employ 56,000 people around the world. We are not that big because we are an unsuccessful business that can't cope with one guy on his own. We are that big with that many people because we are successful. In our lives, if you're running your own life on your own, it isn't a sign of strength, it's a sign of weakness. If you are being so successful and achieving so much great stuff that you have other people, you need other people to help you, it's because you are being successful and you are strong. We need to break this mindset because actually we end up becoming this single point of failure for ourselves and our lives fall off a cliff. Maybe yours hasn't yet and hopefully it never will. But we're in a local community here where there are people around us all the time. All we need to do is just ask for help when we know that we need it and prepare for those times to prevent it from happening. Again, Redeemer, we can learn from this. We are a relatively small church but a church of any size struggles from exactly the same thing. that There are individuals in this church who carry a great deal of weight that if uh, for some reason they got sick and couldn't serve or ended up moving house because of their job or whatever, the Redeemer would really struggle as a result. The most obvious example of this is that Pete is our only full-time paid member of staff. We don't have anyone else like that. Now, he has, is not here this morning. But the reason that he's not here is because he knows that there are enough people who can take care of the individual things that he's responsible for. But it wouldn't take more than one or two other people being away before actually our Sunday morning start to lose a little bit of direction and we're not sure what happens. So we as individuals can make sure that Redeemer doesn't have single points of failure by stepping up to serve and saying, I have got a gift and I can take some of the weight off Pete, as an example, to allow him to then do what he is best at and that Redeemer would benefit most from. It also means, yeah, let's give more because if you give more, we can afford to employ more people. So I'll check that one in as well. That one is a freebie. So, two problems, distractions, Nehemiah was a single point of failure. Third problem, enemies and opposition. I don't know if you spotted in that chapter, there were two people who were leading uh, the rebellion against the building of the wall, which was Sanballat and Tobiah. There were two people in this chapter who were mentioned specifically who were Sanballat and Tobiah. Why are they still around? living inside Jerusalem, protected by the wall that they were trying to stop being built. It doesn't make any sense. Why would Nehemiah build a wall and then allow the enemies to then live inside his city? Those enemies should have been kicked out and told never to come back, because if they hadn't, then maybe some of this stuff wouldn't have happened. We do this all the time as well. In First Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, then the devil is described as a prowling lion just waiting behind every corner in our life to pounce on us and take us down. He's just waiting for our eyes to just be distracted the tiniest little bit. And if we don't kick out enemies when we encounter them, then he will take advantage of every single one of those situations. In Matthew chapter five, at the back end of that, then Jesus talks about temptation. And he says, if it is your hand that's causing you to sin, then chop it off. If your eye is causing you to sin, gouge it out because it is better for you to not be led into sin but then to have the rest of eternity without an eye. This is a bit of a challenge. It, I don't think it's talking to us about actually plucking out your actual eye, but it talks about a radical amputation of things which tempt us. So if for you temptation comes because you're on the internet then, hey, check out your computer. Oh no, internet's a human right. I don't care. It's, there are so many things. We know what we struggle from ourselves better than anyone else. Oh, God. But we know, therefore, what it is that tempts us. What is it? How, what can we do to just completely amputate that? It may seem really weird and completely countercultural, but actually, if we do genuinely believe that the Bible is true and that God is real and that our eternal future relies on our relationship with God, then surely it just makes sense. Let's just get rid of that stuff so that we can live pure lives. Redeemer is also going to face opposition. I'm not aware of any quite yet, but we will. As your church grows, enemies come. And many of them will be outside the church, and some of them will be inside because people come along and attend and then don't like what's being said and so start to mutter and then start to gather a little group around themselves and then start a little group that then meets separately and then ultimately the church splits. We're not there yet, I really don't think. But maybe there are people in this room who are actually unwittingly perhaps Ready to take Redeemer down because we don't do things enough. Why don't we preach about Israel? Why don't we spend just extended amounts of time speaking in tongues? Why don't we completely take away all of this stuff about reading the Bible and instead go out and do social action? These are some of the things that people might think or people have thought in the past. Maybe you're the one. What should we do with these enemies? The Bible talks about the people of God being like a flock of sheep and Jesus is our shepherd. If a wolf enters the pack of sheep, the right thing to do is not welcome the wolf in and try and make them as welcome as possible. It's kill the wolf. I'm not suggesting that we uh, start line people up, but think, examine your own heart. Are you fully behind Redeemer's agenda, or do you have your own agenda and you're expecting that Redeemer is going to meet that? And if it doesn't, you'll start to mutter. And maybe you'll leave and if you can, take some people with you because yours is more important. If you you do feel like that, then hey, get rid of that outside. Get get rid of it. Cut it off. Talk to a leader and say, I've got these thoughts. What, What do I do about it? Or we can work it through. Don't just become a wolf in sheep's clothing. Okay, so three problems. There is a lot to talk about on that one. I just talked about it in two minutes. So um, discuss it in community groups. Um, so <laughs> distractions is no- one problem. Nehemiah was a single point of failure is a second problem. The third problem is that he allowed enemies to stay in the city. The fourth problem is not actually something that happened while Nehemiah was away. It is what happens when Nehemiah comes back. It is fair to say he does not treat the people of God with love and grace and mercy. He is aggressive and violent. And I think it's quite odd, because the sins that people were committing aren't things like adultery and murder and horrific things. It's it's things like somebody was renting a room in the temple which seems like a guy hasn't got a house, hey, we've got a spare room, move in here. People were getting married within different cultures. Edward and Anugra, I wonder if you wouldn't mind just quickly standing. Relatively recently, we celebrated the engagement of Edward and Anugra, but Edward is from the south, and Anugra is from the north. How are we able to... What would you think? Um, LAUGHTER But we celebrate this thing. Why would we celebrate it when Nehemiah beat people up and plucked out their beards? I do notice that you shaved, Edward. Perhaps you're anticipating that. (laughs) (laughs) I think you look beautiful. (laughs) Now, Now, perhaps none of the traditional commentators, by the way, on this chapter seem to question whether or not the people had committed sin, which is interesting. There are specific rules in Deuteronomy, which I could have quoted this morning, which actually says that, yes, they were breaking specific laws that were set out in Deuteronomy. I don't think that those laws apply now. But at the time, then they were going back certainly against those promises. If you remember Nehemiah 10, then they promised spouse, Sabbath, sanctuary. All three of those are broken in that chapter. So Nehemiah was probably right to be angry at them. There is such a thing as righteous anger. And in fact, there is such a thing as righteous anger, which leads to violence. Jesus, when he entered the temple and people were trading, was famously violent. When he made a whip and whipped them and kicked out the the, um, tables in the temple. If God is doing something, it's probably not wrong. So there's something we can learn there. If somebody came to try and attack my kids... I don't think that I would just let them do it and then forgive them for it. I would go in and aggressively prevent them from doing it because I love my kids, not because I'm an aggressive man. So there are, I think, justifiable reasons for righteous anger which leads to aggression. Most of the time, however, righteous anger should lead us to actively do something which prevents it or solves the problem. We have got righteous anger that people in this borough go hungry every day. And so we have set up a food bank because it solves that problem. It's not the solution, but it's, it's a means to address it. Similarly, we are angry that Christmas is not so much about Jesus as it's about materialism. And so we put on a carol service and invite everyone that we know so that they can learn the real message behind Christmas. So when you come next week, come angry. <laughs> Is that that's what it, we should be angry about it, and it should lead us to action. Nehemiah's response, I think, was over the top. One commentator described it as a temper tantrum. And that's probably not too far off the truth. Okay, so these are our four problems. All four of these have got one root cause, which is easy. The problem was Nehemiah. All of these things are because of him. He made the wrong decision with what he was distracted by. It was him who was a single point of failure. He could have established leaders, he chose not to. It was him who allowed his enemies to live inside the city and didn't exile them when it happened. And it was him who responded aggressively and violently. The problem in all this is Nehemiah, who was the one who was doing all the good work to get there in the first place. He is his own worst enemy. Any management biography that told this story would be written off as a ridiculous biography. Why would anyone want to read that? This is not teaching us about leadership or about how to serve God because the whole thing ends in disaster. Any kind of uh, inspirational, motivational story should be ending in absolute success and achievement because then we can learn from it and we can achieve the same goals. We don't want to achieve this goal at Redeemer. So why have we wasted the last 10 weeks Reading it and learning from it, when we know where it leads in the end. The answer is that this story is not the end of the story. And in fact, this story isn't the story at all. This story is part of the big story. John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus is having a conversation with the Jewish leaders at the time, the teachers of the law. And he explains that they haven't understood the scriptures properly because they haven't realized that it all speaks about him. This book, Nehemiah, is not about Nehemiah at all. It teaches us about Jesus. And the story of Nehemiah is a little story which actually leads us into seeing what the big story looks like. Nehemiah was building anticipation and momentum and success and achievement and promises and completely fell off a cliff. And if you read the Old Testament in chronological order, you'll notice that Nehemiah is almost the last book that was written. Although it's in the middle, everything that comes after it, almost, was actually written before it. And so Nehemiah sits at this point where if you read it chronologically, very little else happens after this. That the, all of the time before Nehemiah had been building with the prophets, promising, prophesying, and promising, something exciting is coming, Messiah is coming building sense of anticipation, building momentum as the people of Israel return from exile back to the promised land, take over Jerusalem, we're back where we're meant to be. The people of God are ready. When is Messiah coming? All the promises have been leading to this point. And then, after Nehemiah is written, God goes silent. And for 400 years, God says nothing. And the people are left with generation after generation, after generation, waiting for what had been promised until it passes into legend and myth and superstition. Messiah isn't coming at all. And the Bible only starts to talk again 400 years later, back in Jerusalem, where the people of God are living, but now it's not them who are in charge. They're being oppressed by the ancient Roman rulers. And in Luke chapter 2, we meet a man whose name was Simeon, an old man who worked in the temple and had worked there as long as anyone could remember. And as a child, he had been given a little promise. Before you die, you will meet Messiah. He's coming. And even though everyone else was a bit cynical and had grown up, just everyone thinks this and nobody's ever seen it. For him, he was clutching onto something that as a child, he thought this was certainly true. And surely he will come. And just one day when he's in the temple, two teenagers walk in holding a baby and a whisper drifts down from heaven. Here he is. Nehemiah tells us the story of what happens if we rely on a man to lead us when you need a God-man. And so this Christmas... When we gather around the crib and look at this little helpless baby, we shouldn't think they is give him golden frankincense and myrrh. We should think this is the one who grew up to conquer all sin and death and suffering and pain and tears forever. And he is alive today. It is not Pete who leads our church as nice as he is because Pete will fail. Jesus leads our church. He is the great high priest. He is the one who has died once for all so we don't need to do anything at all. It's him who has the victory for us and Redeemer is going to see amazing success and growth not because of our efforts but because it's him who builds his church. Yes. Jesus is not the one. Hang on, let me see what I'm going to say. He's not an imperfect leader who's building a physical city who has other priorities to take him away from us. He has got infinite capacity and doesn't get distracted. He is not a single point of failure because he is one in three. And all three of those are eternally victorious, eternally powerful, eternally and infinitely good to us. Hallelujah. He is not one who allows enemies into his house. But in the name of Jesus, we can cast out any demon, any enemy. It's all about him. I forgot to mention, under single point of failure, he's not even one who holds it all for himself, but he establishes us as rulers with him. We sung that song before, we seated me uh, with him forever. We're seated with him in the positions of authority. What grace. And he is not an aggressive God who deals with sin by punishing us. He took the punishment on himself so that we don't ever have to be punished and can live in his victory forever. How great is our God. In Matthew chapter 26, just before Jesus died at the Last Supper, And this happens in verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We are going to break bread and drink uh, juice rather than wine this morning together. And as we're doing this, Jesus is sitting in heaven waiting for us, thinking, I can't wait to drink that with you when I return again in my eternal kingdom. So this morning, um, if the first... Two rows could just come and quickly help to distribute this. What we're going to do is we will say a couple of words together, and when we eat the bread, then we'll all say together we remember, our leaders in what we're remembering. But then when we drink the cup, then we're going to drink to that day when Jesus comes again to be our eternal leader, better than Nehemiah and eternally victorious. And if we've got some time, we might sing. I want to encourage you this morning that taking the bread and wine is something which is restricted only to those members of God's family. So if you are not a member of God's family, I want to say to you, don't eat or drink. But because I want everyone to get involved, I want to give you an opportunity to be adopted into his family right now. If you have never committed yourself to God and allowed yourself to enter into a relationship with Jesus... Or even if you feel like it's just been going cold and you want to recommit yourself, I'm going to give us an opportunity this morning. We're all going to stand, but if you've never done that before, then this morning is a time where you can stand and say, I am part of the family of God. I'm excited to be called on to adventure with him, because it's in him that we have the victory, and it's in him that our lives have destiny and purpose and meaning. So shall we all stand together? And if that's you for the first time, then please come and grab uh, me or Mark at the end of the service. That would be great. If you don't have bread and or wine, if you wouldn't mind just sticking your hand in the air so we can make sure we've all got it. Okay, I'm going to say a few words and if you could just respond all together, we'll say, we remember, and we'll take the bread. Jesus, as we eat this bread, we remember you as you gave your body, which has been broken for us so that we can live in your victory forever. We remember. And then... In response to this one, if we say, to that day. So Jesus, as we drink this juice, then we commit that we are going to reign with you forever and we are going to, with great joy, drink with you in your kingdom. To that day.